welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm Jesse Bartholomew, and today I'm going to tell you a two-part story that takes place in Lexington, Kentucky. This will not be your run-of-the-mill history lesson. I'm going to talk about some of the darker parts of Lexington's past. Most of this information comes from a book by Mary Jean Wall called Madame Belle, Sex, Money, and Influence in a Southern Brothel, which I highly recommend you read after you listen to these episodes, of course. This is the story of Belle Breezing. Belle was born and raised in Lexington, and eventually she ran a very successful business there too, but she had her share of hardships before her success. Belle's biological father abandoned the family when Belle was just a baby, Her childhood coincided with the Civil War, and when she was 15, her mother Sarah passed away, leaving Belle an orphan caring for her own infant. So her mother Sarah married a man named George Breezing in 1861, when Belle was just 18 months old, and George was known publicly to be a violent man who drank a lot and beat his wife out in the open. And the combination of Sarah and George both drinking heavily was just a recipe for disaster, which eventually led to them getting kicked out of the space that they rented to operate their grocery store. Eventually, they got divorced, and this only added to the tension that was already in the air caused by the presence of both Union and Confederate soldiers in Lexington. And it wasn't just the actual soldiers being around, but the rift the war caused between residents of Lexington. Fights were breaking out right and left, and people just weren't getting along. You know, we were kind of right smack dab in the middle. And as the war went on, it was noted that the crime rate in Lexington increased pretty drastically. People were shoplifting and robbing one another's homes, and soldiers were looting stores too. Belle was almost five years old by the time the war finally ended, uh, years later than anyone expected, and the Lexington that was left for her to grow up in was one of, quote, violence and lawlessness. And on top of that, her family life was broken. When she arrived at school on her first day, when she was six years old, she was not greeted warmly. Instead, she was basically shunned by her classmates. Um, Their parents had warned them not to associate with her. Everyone knew about her parents and, you know, the violence and the drinking and the divorce, and they just didn't want their children involved. And it wasn't just that her parents were violent, but some details of their divorce proceedings had been made public, and apparently a few people testified that Sarah was actually a prostitute and that she had been sleeping with lots of other men in back rooms of saloons during their marriage. So very quickly after their divorce was finalized, Sarah married a man named William McMeekin, And she, Belle, and Belle's sister, Hester, all moved in with him. But then they separated, too, not long after that. And not a whole lot of other details are really known about Belle's early childhood, although it is believed that she did well in school. In 1872, 
Bell met a man named Dionisio Mucci, who just recently moved to Lexington with his wife and family. At that time, Bell was 12 and Dionisio was in his 30s, and they started a sexual relationship that went on for at least two years. The age of consent in 1872 happened to be 12. But shortly after that, she started seeing a guy named Johnny Cook, who was only a year older than Belle. But in 1875, when she was 15, Belle became pregnant. And instead of marrying Johnny, this boy she was known to be seeing, three months into her pregnancy, she married another guy named James Kenny. James was 19, and it shocked everyone when the two got married. And I mean everyone, because Belle had already become somewhat locally famous. And although they were married, Belle had no intention of ending things with the other men in her life. Unfortunately, not long after that wedding, Johnny Cook was found dead in an alley. It was unclear whether he'd been murdered or committed suicide, But those close to Cook said he would never have killed himself, and those who saw him in the days leading up to his death said he seemed totally normal, there seemed to be absolutely nothing out of the ordinary that would indicate he might do something like that. Furthermore, witnesses had seen Belle and Cook out together recently, and Belle's new husband left town suddenly after Cook's death and didn't come back to Lexington for over a decade. But the coroner ended up ruling the death a suicide, and people still speculated otherwise. Belle had her baby, Daisy May Kenny, on March 14, 1876, and it's unclear who the father was, but it was around this time that her mother Sarah was becoming very ill, very fast, and two months later, on May 19, 1876, she passed away. So Belle was left a teen mom with no mom of her own, and to make matters worse, on the day of her mother's funeral, as she arrived home afterwards, she found all their belongings thrown out on the street. She had been evicted. So a neighbor agreed to take care of Daisy until Belle could figure out her next move. So she left Daisy with that neighbor and she moved in with a boyfriend who counterfeited money for a living and she, quote, walked the streets, which were not so friendly in 1876. And things really went even further downhill in July of that year when Belle and a friend of hers attempted suicide together by taking a lot of morphine. And when asked about this later, she said it wasn't her first suicide attempt. She was so unhappy with her life and with having to be a prostitute. And she said that she would, quote, rather die a thousand deaths than live the life she was pursuing then. So, although it's believed Belle was a prostitute for years before this, the first time it's really documented is December of 1879. She started working for a brothel owned by a woman named Jenny Hill. And interestingly, the house that they worked out of was previously the home of Mary Todd, who left Kentucky and later married Abraham Lincoln.
In the late 1800s, moving off the streets and into a brothel was a pretty big deal. You had kind of made it if you could get a job at a brothel. So this was a big turning point for Belle, I think. She was 19 when she started there, the second youngest of Jenny Hill's employees. Still young, but ready to change her ways and kind of take herself more seriously. So She started dressing well, and she quit taking drugs, and she started making those connections that would prove to be so beneficial later on, and eventually she opened her own brothel at 163 North Upper Street in the 1880s. It was conveniently located near the Phoenix Hotel, where all the important visitors stayed in Lexington. Her client list from her days as a prostitute was mostly made up of wealthy men in the horse business, and that clientele also became her customer base at her new brothel, which meant some of the most powerful men in Lexington were regulars at her establishment. And it sort of became this great environment for these businessmen to put deals together and do these horse transactions, um, which really helped her business. And... You know, Belle herself, she knew about the horse business and she enjoyed horse racing and often went to the track to bet. So it sounds like she ran a pretty tight ship at the brothel. Men were required to dress formally as guests there and her girls weren't permitted downstairs unless they were wearing evening gowns. It was upscale. Where the going rate was $2, she charged 5 and that's not including alcohol sales. She was indicted for the first time in 1882 for keeping a body house. She was pardoned by her acquaintance, though, Governor Luke Blackburn. It really does pay to have friends in high places. But she would go on to be indicted many more times in the following decades, at least once a year, but sometimes more. A lot of her neighbors really didn't love what was going on, but... You know, at the time, it was pretty common for powerful men to speak up on behalf of brothel owners and get their cases dismissed for them. You know, these men were their clients. And as far as Belle's personal life went, she gave birth to a stillborn child on July 13th, 1882. And as Daisy May turned six, the neighbor who was taking care of her realized she was mentally challenged So together they decided to send her to live with nuns in Newport. So not great, you know, when she really should have had two children with her. Ideally, she had neither. But because there are records of Belle's ledgers, we do have an idea of her income and some of her expenses. So if you're curious, like I was, she was charging around $16 a week for her girls to board at the house. And for a long time, there were just five of them. She had to pay for their meals. Coal oil was a big expense. Bed sheets, towels, linens, and bird seed for their pet parrot because every brothel should have an exotic bird. And then a good part of her income came from liquor sales, of course. And there were patterns in her income uh, that always correlated with horse events. So she actually charged her girls more to stay there and work on weeks that the races were on. 
Around this time, Belle was growing close with a man named Billy Mabin, who she'd known for a long time. He was well-connected, he came from a good family, and the two sometimes ventured out together in public as a couple. Now, I think it's worth saying here to help paint a mental picture for you that personally, I don't think Belle was a particularly attractive woman, but when you look at photographs of her, you can easily tell by her facial expression, her posture, just this vibe that she gives off in these photos that she was memorable. She was a force to be reckoned with. There's a photo of her from when she's around eight years old, and even then, she is so confident and so sure of herself, she looks like she's just like standing there plotting to take over the world. I'll post photos, of course, but she had a square face, um, wide-set eyes under pretty thick eyebrows, and she had these full lips that were kind of always in a frown, but she had this glow in her eyes that kind of counteracted the frown. And in all the photographs I've seen of her, she's dressed to the nines. So my point in telling you this is just that it probably wasn't her beauty that got her that far in life. And I hope that doesn't sound like an insult because I'm just trying to say that I think she had such a strong presence and business acumen that that's what got her that far. Anyhow, there's one man in town who had made it his mission to get Belle and the other brothels in town shut down indefinitely. So this is when we get this first little whisper of like an anti-prostitution sentiment. And this guy's name was Charles Moore, and he started a petition that included the signatures of some pretty prominent figures, including the president of the University of Kentucky. So this is when Belle first started feeling the heat, and she considered a move. On May 14, 1890, Derby Day, Bell was finalizing an important transaction. Bell was somewhat of a real estate mogul, and she was about to make a decision that would propel her to the next level. She already owned a few other small rental properties around town, but she was about to buy a house at 58 McGowan in the newly formed Red Light District. This neighborhood was the logical place for brothels at the time because African Americans comprised the major demographic, and since they didn't have a say in government affairs, there was nothing they could do about it. And the area was nicknamed The Hill because McGowan and the surrounding streets ran uphill from Main Street, so it was actually quite a haul to get up there, especially before automobiles. She had some financial assistance from some wealthy friends. There were two brothers, George and William Singerly, who inherited a lot of money and they used it to make good investments and they got into a lot of different industries, including the horse industry. There have been conflicting reports about exactly which one of them was courting her, but we do know that at least one, if not both of them, were helping her purchase furniture, clothing, and other fine things. Although, a lot of the furniture ended up coming from admirers of hers from Texas, and there are photos of the parlor and a couple other rooms in the house that are decorated with these, like, 
extravagant longhorn themed pieces, um, including a few really over the top chairs. Um, after purchasing the house for $1,400, she expanded the eight room residence into 20 rooms and would, after a fire a few years later, expand it further to 27 rooms. She had a lavish grand opening in 1891. All her prostitutes and all the guests were dressed in their best evening attire. And among those in attendance were politicians, lawyers, judges, physicians, bankers, and horsemen, of course. There is a single photograph in existence that we know of, the documents that night, and it's described as follows. Tables with, quote, exquisite linens, gleaming silverware, dazzling cut glasses, fragile china, tall vases of American beauty roses, an orchestra behind potted palms in a far corner. At the table sat beautiful women, appropriately costumed for such an auspicious occasion, and, incredible as it seems today, doctors, lawyers, businessmen, civic and social leaders of the city, quite a number of whom I had all known, immaculately clad in full dress suits, making no effort whatever to conceal their identity. Belle continued to keep up her friendships with people in high places. One such person was police judge John J. Riley, who, quote, dealt lightly and sympathetically with prostitutes brought into police court. And wouldn't you know it, Judge Riley ended up falling in love with one of the prostitutes that he met at Bell's brothel, and he ended up quitting his job, and they moved in together. And it sounds like this was actually pretty common, especially for men who lived out of town, so they could take these women home and marry them, and no one in their hometown would know where these women came from. Another customer who frequented the brothel was a man named Elias J. Lucky Baldwin, and he was a Californian who visited Kentucky for horse business frequently. And to understand this guy, I'm just going to read you this excerpt from the book because I couldn't put it any better myself. Quote, at Louisville, he drove the coach up to the Galt house and asked for a suite of rooms. The hotel manager was aghast. The problem was not Baldwin or his show English coach. The jaw-dropper was the bevy of young women loaded into the coach. The women were popping out of the windows and doors, putting on quite a show. The manager told Baldwin this just would not do. The Galt House had standards. Baldwin's response was to draw attention to the pearl-handled pistol strapped to his hip. He then pulled a roll of $1,000 bills from his pocket and waved it in front of the manager. He got his suite of rooms, and on subsequent visits, he always stayed at the Galt House. So I'm just telling you this bit to give you an idea of the type of characters who frequented Bell's brothel as well. So there are some accounts of what Bell expected from the girls who worked for her. First of all, she provided them all nice clothing up front for which they would pay her back in installments later. 
But she would not allow her girls to sit out in front of the house or call out offering their services to passers-by. And if they went into town for anything, they had to dress modestly and, quote, behave properly. And under no circumstances could they interact if they saw a customer out and about. On March 16, 1895, a fire started at the brothel while Belle was on vacation in New York. And I love this little bit. So there was a dog whose job it was to run out ahead of the fire trucks in Lexington to warn anyone who might be standing in the way. And at first they had named this dog Tramp and they changed it to Nice after getting to know the dog better. So they had this fire dog named Nice, who is kind of like a little well-known local legend in Lexington. I just think that's so cute. Anyway, the damage from this fire was pretty bad. It destroyed the upper level. There was lots of water damage. But Savvy Bell Breezing had an insurance policy for $40,000, and she decided to rebuild. And this time, she went ahead and added a third floor, and she painted the whole building stark white. So it was just this big, white vision on McGowan Street. So Belle and Billy Mabin were pretty much an item at the time, but they had this unspoken agreement basically that whenever the Singerly brothers were in town, Billy Mabin would move out and just leave them alone until they left again. And Belle had to arrange it this way because she was still being financially supported by the Singerly brothers. They were major investors in her business. Now, Maven did have his own place, but it's believed that he spent most of his time at Bell's and that he really cared about her. I mean, this is one of the most significant relationships in her life. But the Singerly brothers were not the only ones that Maven had to compete with. There was a man named Charles Riley Grannon. And he was a notorious gambler born in Paris, Kentucky, but had lived in several different places. And he won a lot of money betting on horses. And he opened a place in Lexington called the Navarre Cafe in 1894. And the significant part of his story is that he bought Belle, or he probably bought Belle, we don't know for sure, But it's speculated that he bought her this over-the-top, expensive, huge bed. Okay, and this bed ends up selling for a ton of money later on. But um, it's it's just kind of interesting because it's said that, you know, Belle and Billy Maven slept in this bed that another man had given her as a gift. And he, you know, he didn't love that. But anyway, around this time, there was also an economic recession that really hurt the horse industry big time, as well as other industries in Lexington, but Bell's business went unfazed. Um, Even though one of her biggest investors, William Singerly, was suffering financially, Bell carried on business as usual. Men were still showing up every night and, you know, drinking as much as ever, if not more than usual. Um, 
you know, Singer Lee was actually having a really hard time and he ended up dying just a few months after his bankruptcy. But at this point, Belle was self-sufficient. She didn't need him. She had made other connections in high places. But leadership in those high places was beginning to shift. A 76-year-old man named James Ben Ali Hagen moved in with his 28-year-old wife. They came to Lexington in 1897, and he was known as a mining king. He had tons of money. He owned the largest racing stable in the world at the time and over a thousand horses. So he and his wife bought a farm and they built a 40-room mansion on it. And when Hagen moved to Lexington, he, quote, enabled the ride of a former federal bureaucrat named Charles Berryman. And Charles Berryman would, a few years later, come after Belle Breezing and her business. That brings us to the end of part one of the Belle Breezing story. Now you'll see in part two, public opinion really changes with the turn of the century on prostitution and that puts a lot of pressure on the government to kind of crack down and so in part two you'll find out how this affects Belle and her business and what happens to her so stay tuned for that and if you're enjoying the show please remember to go to apple podcasts and leave a review and don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already Uh, that's it all I've got. So until next time.